Welcome to World Build With Us, the podcast where we create fantastical worlds with help from you, our listeners. My name is Rob Hilferty, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Daniel Quinn and Christopher Prunty. Hello. On today's episode, we are interviewing author and game designer, Justin Alexander. We're going to cut to that interview now. We are here with author Justin Alexander today. Uh, Justin, so glad to have you on. And for those of us who might not know you too well, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm super excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, as you said, I'm Justin Alexander. Uh, I am an Emmy award-winning author of the online blog, The Alexandrian, uh, where I share game mastering advice. Uh, I also stream on Twitch, and I'm about to launch a YouTube channel, which will also be looking at advanced game mastery advice as well. I'm also the RPG producer at Atlas Games. We produce games like Ars Magica, uh, Feng Shui, the action role-playing game, Over the Edge, uh, Unknown Armies, and our newest game, Magical Kitties Save the Day. <laughs> I'm, I'm so glad that you mentioned that right out the gate because I was, uh, for, for anyone who's been listening to our podcast long enough, I'm sure that we've mentioned you and the Alexandrian multiple times. Yes. And uh, yeah, oh, yeah we, we're obviously like big fans, so we're kind of fanboying out a little bit, but it's also just great to sit down and be able to talk to someone who's as prolific as a writer as you are. And good God, is that impressive, the amount of work that you actually do. Um, really, uh, that's actually going to be my first question is, what does your writing regimen look like? Because with the amount of writing that you actually do on top of the Alexandrian and all of your work with Atlas Games and everything, I have to imagine that it has to be fairly... Uh, strict or specific, and I and I as a writer myself, I'm very curious as to what that's like. Well, it used to be a lot more strict and specific, and then I had a kid, uh, and that uh, <laughs> that threw everything for a loop. And then I had a kid in a pandemic, and that threw everything for a loop. <laughs> but uh, the the key, one of the key things I I have learned over the years to aim for, at least for what works for me personally, and the way that my own sort of daily rhythms work is to not necessarily aim for a specific block of time, which I know is a technique that works for a lot of writers. My mother, for example, was a historical mystery author uh, who published books under the name Margaret Fraser, and her regimen was 6 a.m. every day, sit down, write until 10 a.m. That was the writing. Uh, and I tried that for a while. It just doesn't work well with the way my own personal rhythms work. I currently use a technique called Pomodoro, uh, which is you use a timer and you work for a block of 25 minutes and then the timer goes off and you take a five-minute break and then you start another 25-minute timer for the next block of work. And the goal with that is just to kind of not get into a rut or to sort of burn out and just sort of be idly staring at the screen. Those little five-minute breaks are just a nice little way of kind of breaking things up and then being able to kind of come back, come back into it. And then you just keep a log of what you've been spending each one of those Pomodoro units on. And I have just a little notebook that I keep next to my keyboard. I literally just, I literally just picked it up into my hands. It has a list of the things I'm working on today. And I'll go through and make, make check marks. And my general goal there is to make, uh, ideally, I would like to make a total of 16 check marks uh, on the notepad. Sometimes I don't make that. Sometimes I do a few more. Sometimes those hours come first thing in the morning, and that's great. And sometimes they don't come until after my daughter is in bed. Uh, but they let me kind of just make sure that I actually am focused and working and not just like surfing Twitter and pretending that I'm working. 
Yeah. Um, so this kind of segues into you being a writer and being prolific. Um, you also have this incredible list of um, acting credits. Um, and so the question I have is, given that you have a background as a playwright, as well as an actor and as a traditional writer, how has that experience like performing in your past influenced um, the way that you write for TTRPGs? Um, performance at DM, um, and then just, you know, write in general in your, in your non RPG writings? That's a great question. I think the, the, there's obviously an influence there. Uh, in terms of, in terms of the, the connection between the playwriting and the GMing, which is a different art than the acting. I can talk about the acting too in a second, but in terms of the, the playwriting and also the directing and how that relates to, to the role-playing games, is I think the biggest insight I had as both a playwright and a director in theater is that unlike writing a short story or a novel or something like that, theater is an intensely uh, cooperative effort. It is a team effort. And what I think is really interesting that theater calls forth more so than, say, screenwriting for a film, for example, is that the anticipation, if your script is successful, is that you will have it produced many times with many different teams of people. And if you are a director, when, when you're in the director's chair, you are often picking up scripts, almost universally picking up scripts that other people have previously produced and that other people will produce into the future. For example, I've done a ton of work with Shakespeare over the years and a lot of Shakespearean scholarship. And obviously, anytime you pick up a Shakespeare play, you're talking about thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of productions that have come before. And from that perspective, what's interesting about that is understanding that as the playwright or the director, it's not, it's not about having your vision that somehow you're going to force onto the stage. It is about having a, having a seed that you are creating that will, if you're the playwright, will be interpreted by the director and that will be interpreted by the individual production, the, the set designers, the prop designers, the costume designers, and the actors to create something unique. And then the next time that script gets produced, you will hopefully see something that will be equally unique. And I think understanding that from a theatrical standpoint put me in good stead when it came to role-playing games and exploring role-playing games, because I think a lot of that is also true, although you're not, of course, usually talking about, at your home table anyways, productions that are going to be you know, staged over and over again, but that the, the act of creation is not you as a game master coming in and trying to impose the vision of what you wanted this session or campaign to be. It is about bringing, some, bringing, bringing your material to the table and then actively playing that material while the players are actively playing the characters, the creative characters that they've brought to the table. And in the, the, the interface between your active play and the player's active play, that's where something really, really special gets created, something unique that you couldn't have created by yourself that wouldn't have existed except for that unique experience and interaction that you had at the table. And that's what I found exciting about theater. And that's what I find really exciting about role-playing games. So it's that collaborative component, I guess. I never really thought in terms of playwriting that there would be that component where, you know, you're putting your work forward, you know, as the player, but also as the, the actor. And then there's this adaptation that happens, which mm -hmm. I guess is what's happening technically in the RPG, which is interesting. Exactly. And I guess the other half of your question there was about mm -hmm. also the acting, which is actually kind of, I mean, you have the same collaborative process, but there are other lessons to be learned from my time as an actor. Um, 
that studying things like Stanislavski and method acting, for example, or uh, there's, a, there's actually uh, another acting teacher named Michael Chekhov, who is lesser known even among actors, uh, who was a student of Stanislavski's. And Michael Chekhov actually developed a, uh, an acting technique he called the psychological gesture. And whereas Stanislavski method technique was all about finding emotions or memories within you and then finding out how to reflect those into your characters in empathetic ways, Michael Chekhov believed that you could capture a character by finding the appropriate physical gesture and that that psychological gesture of physical motion would be reflected or reflective of the character's essence. And so if you could, if you could get the right gesture into your, into your acting, that you would be able to capture that character in some sense. And that, that, that building the role was about finding the key psychological gestures that would move you through the role beat by beat. And that, that is actually, that, that is not necessarily his specific technique, which is very much about script analysis, but the idea of gesture as a window into character is something I've actually talked about quite a bit on the Alexandrian. So on the Alexandrian, for example, I have an article where I talk about my uh, universal MPC role-playing template, as I call it, which I've also used in my, I did, um, I was the lead developer on the Infinity RPG for Modiphius uh, back in 2015, 2016 timeframe. And we used it in that. And now I'm using it in our Over the Edge and um, uh, new Feng Shui adventures that we're doing at Atlas, just because I find it to be a very useful tool. And one of the things in that universal NPC role-playing template is a role-playing section where you basically just put three bullet points that kind of try to capture real quick like what the role playing for that character, that might be motivation, it might be accent, uh, it might be a particular attitude. Uh, but one of the things I always try to include in that section, in those like two or three bullet points that I use to step into the character very quickly, because I'm swapping between different characters, is some sort of physical gesture or mannerism, because I found that to be really effective in terms of, again, being able to quickly get into these NPCs is to have, you know, the guy who strokes his beard, the guy who crosses his arm, the guy who winks at you too yeah. much. All of those things can be, you know, not you don't have to be big things. They have to be like a, a thing you overplay, but they help capture that character. They maybe help like psychologically index them for you. They're great if you're trying to role play with yourself at the table when your players have maneuvered you into like role playing a scene with yourself. Uh, being able to indicate which character is talking uh, makes it a lot by stroking your beard or crossing your arms, depending on which character it is. It's a subtle thing, but that's that's one way in which sort of the, the acting lessons I've taken over the years and the acting practices have found their way uh, into my into my role playing game experiences. It's like so simple, but so effective. I think. Yeah, that's definitely my experience. Like, you, like I mean, and when you say it out loud, sometimes it's like well, I'm not. You know, it feels like you're talking about a caricature, but it's not a caricature thing. It is just this little touchstone. You're trying to extract a little bit about what the character is in that one gesture, but their psychology really. Exactly. Yeah, they're anchor points for not only you to latch onto, but for the players as well. And if you pick a good enough one, you can tend to not not caricaturize like you were kind of suggesting, but like really encapsulate who that person is very, very quickly. I remember Al Pacino was talking about his role in Glengarry Glen Ross and how he picked up a pinky ring and from from costuming and he looked at it and he said, this is my character. This is my character and everything. And and like that. And for some reason, that little pinky ring changed his performance and really encapsulated who he thought his character was. 
I love that story. That's fantastic. Yeah, you can't really argue with Al Pacino, right? <laughs> you should. You will lose that argument every time in volume, if nothing else. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Chris, you had an awkward segue over to Magical Kitty Save the World. Go ahead. Thank you for framing it <laughs> such a way. Uh, you went from very advanced tips to uh, Magical Kitty Save the World is kind of like how to introduce people into uh, role-playing uh GMing and other things. Uh, do you plan on doing more things that are kind of, I don't want to say coursework, but uh, how to introduce people into topics of role playing or role playing in a certain way? Like, uh, I don't know. I, I would appreciate it to be like, hey, how can we everyone be better at role playing online? How do we make it not what it is now? <laughs> Or, or uh, even maybe even streamlining the process or, or removing the fear from uh, game mastering as well. Cause that's one oh thing that God, I've experienced yes. as well, especially in my friend group, like Chris and I are mostly the DMS and despite Daniel's going to DM, he's going to work on it. I've been Someday. practicing with my groups like, uh -huh. for months now. <laughs> Someday. Every Someday, frame will be a painting. <sighs> In his uh, well, let me let me tell you, like the magical kitty save the day is the perfect opportunity to be your first your first GMing experience. We actually designed it that way. So, but for those in the audience who may not be familiar with magical kitties save the day, it is our new role playing game from Atlas. And the concept is that uh, everyone plays a magical kitty, and every magical kitty has a human. Now, some of the humans think that they own the kitties, but that's ridiculous. But every human has a problem, and so the magical kitties need to use their magical powers to solve the human's problems and save the day. And then the twist, of course, is that the kitties and the humans all live in a hometown together, and the hometown also has problems. Problems like uh, witches, or uh, roving packs of dinosaurs who have time-traveled from the past, or hyper-intelligent raccoons, or alien invasions. And so those kinds of hometown problems tend to make your human problems worse. And so you as magical kitties who want to help your humans need to solve those hometown problems before they make life too difficult uh, for your humans. And the whole game is designed to be, be for all ages. But one particular thing we, we are aiming for is to be the game where if you're a parent, for example, who wants to introduce role-playing games to your to your kids, uh, we wanted the game to kind of, of be be that opportunity for you. And so sort of our target audience is like six to 12 year olds who are being introduced to RPGs for the first time. And we did a number of things in the box to kind of, of try and make that trend. One of the reasons why it's in a box is so that we could use some of these tools. So for example, the first thing you'll find when you open the box of Magical Kitties Save the Day is actually a comic book called Magical Kitties and the Big Adventure. And this is actually a solo play graphic novel adventure that plays like a, a choose your own path kind of adventure book, but in comic book form. And over the course of the book, the book will actually teach you how to create a character, uh, how to play the game, and then you'll go on your own your own first adventure. So for someone who's completely new to role-playing games, they'll be able to open that box and within within mere minutes be actually sort of playing the game and getting getting a little taste of what a role-playing game kind of feels like, although obviously it's not the full experience, right? But we wanted to kind of have that that ability to pick up the game and immediately play it to get a taste for it, to get you excited about getting your friends together to play with you. And then there's a lot of there's a lot of things we've done in the game to make it really friendly for introducing new players to the game. But we also wanted to also have the game be 
a place where new players could then transition to being new GMs for the first time. Uh, whether those are kids or parents uh, who haven't GM'd before, in either case, we wanted to include those those tools. And so one of the things we looked at with Magical Kitties, uh, one of my big contributions to the new edition, I worked on the game with um, Matthew J. Hansen, who was the original creator of the game. Uh, he published a PDF-only first edition uh, through Drive-Thru RPG that... Uh, we became aware of, and Michelle Nephew, who's one of the co-owners of the company, uh, had run a campaign for her kids for several years uh, before realizing, hey, don't we own a game company, and couldn't we share this awesome game with more people, which is where I came in. And so Matthew and Michelle and I all worked on developing the second edition together. One of my big contributions was was the suite of GM tools. And uh, like you were saying, we had the... I have all this sort of like articles on the Alexandrian, which are targeted at kind of advanced game mastery in some sense, where I'm a lot of those articles are assuming you are a GM and you are looking for more information about how to improve. But I wanted to look at some of that advice that was written for that audience, for the audience of people who've been GMing in some cases for decades. And how could I, how could I present that in a package that was usable by someone who maybe had never even played a role-playing game before. And the method I came up with for Magical Kitty Save the Day specifically was the concept of adventure recipes. And each recipe is a is not just a, a sort of a scenario structure or a method of, of doing scenarios. Like, it's not just like a dungeon, for example. It is a specific template for, for designing an adventure. So if we talk about like dungeons, for example, this is an example from the game. If you talk about dungeons, dungeons is a type of scenario, a scenario structure. A specific template for a dungeon might be uh, the five room dungeon, which is kind of popular online, where it's a, you know it's not just every dungeon. It's here's how you can design a, a dungeon with five rooms. Each room has a specific type of content in it. You create that content, but you know it's going to work because it's a tried and proven template. I have a similar thing on the Alexandrian, which is what I call the five node mystery. Uh, which is which uses the three clue rule, uh, which is my sort of scenario structure for for designing mysteries, and it uses no base scenario design, but it's a specific template for how you can take five nodes and arrange them in a specific way, and you can pour any kind of content you want into those, but again, you know it's going to work because the structure is a tried and proven structure, and so I took that idea and simplified it down into these adventure recipes. And so there's four or five different adventure recipes in Magical Kitties Save the Day, each of which is designed to let the to let the new GM or any GM pour pour the content they want into them to tell to tell the story, to build the scenario, to build the situation they want to be in their game, but but still have the confidence that by following this recipe, it will be a robust experience that will actually work at the gaming table. And so then the rest, much of the rest of the book then is actually elements that you can put into these recipes. So in various places in these recipes, for example, we basically say, okay, and this is where, this is where the foe or the bad guy is going to go. And then of course we have a section of the book that is full of different foes that you can select and put into these recipes to have a variety of different experiences with different bad guys. Right. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's kind of, that's kind of how Magical Kitties tackles that problem. Uh, it's something, it's something I've been looking at for a while now is what other kinds of projects I could tackle that would look at introducing game mastery to, to new game masters specifically. And there's a low key problem I've been hoping to spend more time on, uh, despite my time being spent on, as you said before, so many different projects, uh, which is called, um, I actually want to do a project called So You Want to Be a Game Master. That would be basically a step-by-step -step guide or book 
for a new for a new GM that would really focus heavily on on what you prep and how you run it, which I think is something that tends to get overlooked a lot in game mastery advice, uh, with with exceptions, obviously. Uh, but often game mastering advice ends up being stuff about how to build a world and or how to how to role play NPCs. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, um, but often I feel like we skipped the first step where we told someone how to like build a dungeon or design a mystery. Hmm. I, it sounds like the recipes that you're kind of crafting in Magical Katie Save the Day, it kind of reminds me of how in like AD&D they had character like splat books that like, hey, if you want to play a specific buccaneer type, this is what you want to do. And they give player options. And it sounds like this is similar to that, but for the GM. It's like, hey, these are GM options to help you kind of guide into playing and running the game in a certain way. And I just want to say that, how come that hasn't been done before? Because that sounds like a right. fucking money idea. Yeah. I wish I wish I knew why it hasn't been done before. <laughs> I, I think it's something that's, that's, that's desperately needed in the industry. And it's something, it's something I have tried to, it's something I have tried to do in my work. So like, for example, with the Infinity RPG that I, that I co-developed for, for Modifius, uh, it was not an introductory RPG by any sense of the imagination. Infinity is a big, complex beast of a game. But for the GMing section, we really wanted to have a specific structure, again, a scenario structure that, that GMs could understand how to, how to prep material for the game and, and what, how the game would work on sort of a fundamental level. And so the thing we came up with that I came up with for Infinity uh, was what I called the Wilderness of Mirrors, uh, which was actually, uh, this actually isn't so much a scenario structure, but it was is every, every player at the table, depending on how you dialed, it could be some players or all players, would have a secret agenda, agenda related to the factions that they, that they belonged with. And as a result, you'd potentially have these missions where you'd have all the PCs pursuing different secret agendas as part of the missions. And then supporting that on the back end with the scenario structures that would reward that kind of play where potentially maybe everybody can do their secret agenda in this mission without conflict, or maybe they do have to come in conflict and only some of those secret agendas uh, will be successful. And the the feedback I got from playtesters and game masters is that as a result of just, and it wasn't like, it wasn't like, you know, 40 pages of detailed rules about how to be, how to be secret agents and spies, but just having a really simple structure and really clearly saying, this is, this is the structure. This is the expectation of play uh, for the, for these people I heard back from, it really created a unique experience that they hadn't had in other role-playing games. And I think that's, that's the sad thing about it not being common to sort of communicate these things is, A, I think by not actively thinking about these things, we actually limit the range and richness of experiences that we can have in role-playing games. But I also feel that by, by, not, by not communicating these things, we make it a lot harder for new GMs because so much of the things, so many of the things in terms of how how scenarios are structured and how they're prepped and how they're run are kind of just these assumed pieces of knowledge that become this weird oral history that maybe you pick it up by playing with somebody for a long time. Um, and you can trace some of these oral histories back to like the earliest versions of role-playing games. Uh, and they, and they just kind of like get passed from generation to generation and like occasionally picked up through osmosis, despite the fact that we stopped explaining them in our rule books. And I think that's, that's, that's unfortunate. And if there's one thing I would love to change about the industry and one of the things I really push on the Alexandrian is the idea of 
being personally consciously aware of the structures that you're using and how, how, how you're building scenarios and the effect of how you build a scenario has on the way that scenario uh, plays in, at the actual table. And also, I would love to see more of that get into rule books to clearly communicate expectations and play to, to game masters, whether new or old. I want to take a step back because the possibility of you taking the content that's in the Alexandrian and turning that into a book is such a big deal. And I don't think our list, those of us who are not familiar, like our listeners who don't understand the Alexandrian, what's on there. I need to, I need to understand why that's a big deal because like for me, when I was reading the game mastery one-on-one sections, like that changed the way I even thought about conceiving of how you can build RPGs, either from a game mastering perspective or just like an RPG design perspective. Um, and that's material that won the any like on, on your site. So like the possibility that you're creating a book on that, like I would like to buy 10 of those and distribute them to all my <laughs> friends. So I don't know when that's going to happen. If we can get a timeline, that would be great. But I think that's really a big announcement and really, that's something that's really, really excited about. Soon. I, 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 the best I can say right now is soon. Uh, so like, I mean, the, I have my, I have my gig at Atlas. I want to make sure I'm still producing content for the Alexandrian itself. Um, but I, 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 what I've become aware of in the last couple of three years is the fact that there is a need for a, a need for a book. I think there's actually a need for uh, video content as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Alexandrian has so far been all about kind of text essays, and I that's how I that's my primary method of accumulating new information. But there's lots of people who want to listen to podcasts, who want to watch videos, and I want to be, be able to kind of reach out to those people and make sure that this information is accessible to them. Um, and that's something that's also been made possible just over the past few years um, b- by virtue of Patreon and by by the patrons who support the site. I, I really, uh, if any of my patrons are listening to this now, which I'm sure they will be, I just want to say thank you to all of you. I started my Patreon a little over five years ago now, and it's made so many things possible at the site, including the Dragon High Stream Mix and all that work that eventually won the Any Award and uh, sounds like introduced you to the site as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and all that was only possible because I've had such wonderful patrons who have been able to support that work and make it possible for me to focus on that work and not be, you know, flipping burgers someplace instead. <laughs> we can we can also feel very similarly in that regard. Like we probably wouldn't be nearly as where we are. I mean, we're not anywhere, but right. we are here <laughs> because of our patrons. And man it's so good to know that you're not just screaming into the void and that other people are listening to what you're saying and think that there might be some value to it. I think that's really uh, valuable and important to content creators. And I, I, Patreon has been a really big thing for us as well. This is actually something I, I say to people too, is, you know, it, it, People are like, I can only give you a dollar. And I'm like, you know, that dollar is amazing. And even if you can't afford to give me a dollar, which is totally understandable, or, or give anyone a dollar, let creators know that, that you appreciate the stuff they're doing. Because like you were saying, screaming into the void is exhausting. And there's only so long that you can do that. My my whole career with the Alexandrian is just sort of a, a series of, of lucky coincidences. When I started the site back in 2005 now, which feels like an eternity ago, yeah. uh, I was actually just, I, I had been working in the industry for a while. I'd actually ended up taking a break from the industry for various reasons. But I had a whole bunch of material, articles I'd published in magazines back in the late 90s and early 2000s. I had a bunch of reviews I'd written in that time frame that had, that had been available in various places, but now really weren't. And so I started the website to kind of just archive this older older material and occasionally post 
rambling essays about anything I happen to think about. But after doing it for a while, uh, no one, no one was, as far as I could tell, like actually looking at any of this stuff. Like it was there. I, the site would probably still exist as an archive of stuff I'd published elsewhere. Um, but you know, a year and a half, two years into it, no one was looking at stuff. And then I happened to write an article in 2007 called D and D calibrating your expectations. And the way I came to write that article was complete circumstance. I was actually on. I was actually reading a blog by a, a guy named Seamus Young, um, who's done all kinds of fantastic stuff, um, including uh, DM of the Rings, which is a hilarious webcomic series using screenshots from the Lord of the Rings movies. But but then all the, the dialogue is as if a DM is running it for his players who keep screwing the game up. Well, and if you haven't read that, that it's well worth, <laughs> well worth tracking down. So I was reading his blog. He made some offhand comment about the weight of swords in D&D, which led me to start talking about the various ways in which real-world measurements are represented in, at the time, third edition of D&D. And D&D Calibrating Expectations then became a, a very long article talking about how, if you looked at how the, the calibration between real-world measurements and what characters could do in the game, what that meant about, like, what a fifth level character was versus a 10th level character versus a, a 15th level character uh, with the proclamation that like Aragorn is actually like a fifth level character. And if you're talking about 15th level characters, you're really talking about like demigods. And that article by pure chance, somebody who wasn't me posted it on a site called stumble upon. And in the course of like five days, I had like 10,000 people who had read the article and that, that was a total, that was total luck that I thought to write the article. Like if I hadn't been reading Seamus Young that day, the article never would have been written. Total luck that somebody happened to post it to stumble upon. Total luck that it was at the right time for the audience to kind of build the upvotes to accumulate and for people to come and look at the article. But if that doesn't happen, I don't know that I ever actually write the three clue rule, which is the next major article that I wrote for the Alexandrian because I didn't have an audience for it. And if, I, if you don't have an audience, if you don't know that people are there listening, it becomes, like I say, very difficult to keep producing material. And then here I am, you know, 15 years later, because of a string of lucky happenstances back at the beginning, talking to you guys about all of these things that would never have existed if not for people showing up and then letting me know how much how much they, they enjoyed what I was producing. So it, it, I... I, I owe a, an immense debt of gratitude to my entire audience and to my patrons and all of that. And I just, I, I feel blessed by all of it. Part question, part statement, but it goes off of the three clue rule of uh, the sense that that was really changing as far as like taking the little bits that I've read from your website and then adapting it into mine. Even something is uh, something like the three clue rule, even trying to do that into things that I'm finding difficulty presenting to a player in the sense of not necessarily a mystery, but just like, no, you guys need to understand that this is how this guy has this power. It's just allowed for none of those moments that are just like, I don't understand why they're not picking up on this. I've left so many quote unquote clues, but uh, to also comment, if you were to release something that would be like the, uh, the, book that you were saying of, of of everything that you've done categorized that would be amazing yeah well i mean I'll, I'll yeah statement uh yeah 
I'll, I'll say this. I actually found your website and you, I guess, by uh, your your hex crawl series, which is mm-hmm. uh, exhaustive and amazing. And then once I found the rest of the website, I'm like, oh, this is going to take a while to get through. But man. <laughs> I sat down and I read every one of the 101s as soon as I found the website, one after the other. And I'm like, this is amazing. Every one of these articles is mind blowing. <laughs> and I just went through the whole thing. Thank you. I'm, I'm yes. glad you guys had, I'm glad you guys have been so impressed with, with the Alexandria. I'm glad it's been able to have a positive impact uh, on your games. I mean, yeah. it's, it, I think, the, sorry. No, go, no ahead. go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, I think the big, the biggest impact it's had on me personally is is like you were saying, um, removing the mystery of game mastery, that there is a process that you can apply to it to execute it as if it's as if it were something you could like do over and over again. And, you know, part of that is understanding meaningful, meaningful choice. Part of that is understanding node based design and a lot of the concepts that you brought up, like the three clue rule is part of how you execute that. But those things weren't written down anywhere. And so to have a manual basically to GM, which is what these RPG books claim to contain, which they don't, that would be huge. And I think that that's so important that you're working on that, I think, right now. Yeah, I think that what Justin was saying previously about like, the the strange alchemy that is DMing is like absolutely one of the biggest hurdles for people to get in, to get into the game where there's no real there's no real clear way to get into it unless you just fucking do it and I think a lot of people who are so afraid of it which is kind of what I was getting at previously is like they don't want to have to study the tomes of alchemy to figure out how to do the thing <laughs> right. just so it might e- not even go well. That's the other part of it. As well. Or find like a sensei, you know, <laughs> to teach you. No, it is the right. oral history right. aspect of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right. Yeah, no, it, it is. It is absolutely like trying to find the, the inner chambers of knowledge, the oral histories, and you have to get into those oral history trends. One of the biggest reasons I think that like the popularity of actual play over the last two years has had such a dramatic impact on on gaming is a it shows everyone how how much fun gaming is but it is an ability to access uh, a plethora of these oral traditions the things that the the rule books don't teach you you can at least see a wide variety of gms now uh doing them on camera for you so you can't necessarily like actually like play with them but you can at least receive the oral tradition from them in that sense i think that has had a, a positive impact uh as a result, in term, particularly in terms of people being willing to GM for the first time and having some sense of, of, of how to GM for the first time, I think it does have an overall positive effect for everything that people talk about, like the Mercer effect or whatever. Um, I, I think I think that's actually tangential to the, the much more important thing, which is just the ability to see people GM the game. If you are someone who has never, who doesn't have people around you, but you, you've always wanted to try a role-playing game, that that initial leap is so difficult. I, and I experienced this myself back in the '80s when I was first trying to when I was first trying to get into role-playing games. So my my experience with role-playing games, getting into them, was that I had become kind of aware of them through a sort of cultural osmosis. I think it was partly there used to be like ads for Dungeons and Dragons and Marvel comic books. I probably saw those. D&D was like an E.T., for example. There's a few other examples like that. But I was aware of this concept of a role-playing game, and it sounded really cool, and I really wanted to do it. And so the first the first role-playing game I ever picked up was I was at a comic book convention, and in a box with a bunch of Batman back issues, the comic book dealer had dropped in a copy of the Batman role-playing game produced by May- Mayfair Games back in 1989 to tie in with the... Uh, the Batman uh, movie that came out then. And uh, so I, I was like, this is it. 
this is it. I've got a role-playing game in my hands. And of course, back in the 80s, like just these days you can get on Amazon, right? And just order things from anywhere. But back then it was like, I've never actually seen a role-playing game in the flesh before. Here it is. So I bought it. And I read the book. I read it cover to cover, desperately trying to understand how to play a role-playing game. And at the end of it, I had no idea. I had no idea what I was supposed to do with the game. It was just like a, it was this bizarre tome of arcane eldritch knowledge that had no meaning to me whatsoever. So my dad saw me, my dad saw that I was interested in role-playing games because I had now bought this game and been reading. And he was like, you know, I've actually got a couple of games that somebody gave me back in, in college. And so he gives me a copy of the old Bunnies and Burrows game and the uh, the old Iron Crown uh, Middle, Earth advent- uh, Middle Earth role-playing game, Merp. And so I get, I get both of those and I pick up, I pick up uh, the middle earth role-playing game and I'm like, this is great. I'm also a fan of Tolkien. So here we go. And I read that game and that game, at least I was able to figure out how to create a character. And I think actually in my, my box set of Merp on the shelf downstairs, I think I still have that original character that I rolled up and never played because I still had no idea what I was supposed to do with the character. The character creation section of the, of the rule book had a list of steps like any other rule book of a game, right? Like one through 10, do these. And I could do those. And then the next page, the numbered steps went away and I had no idea what to do. So the actual first role-playing game that I ever played was actually one I made myself. I had this Batman book. I had no idea what to do with it, but I was like, well, yeah, okay. So we can play Batman. So I I wrote my brother in and I'm like, we're going to play a role-playing game and you're going to play Batman and I'm going to be the game master. I understood understood that much. And the way we're going to resolve everything is that Every time you try and do something as Batman, you'll roll a D6 and I'll roll a D6. And if my D6 rolls higher than yours, then you fail. And if, if it doesn't, then you'll succeed and Batman succeeds at what he's doing. And so, so that was really the first role-playing game I played was this game that I basically made up myself. Um, and it was a terrible game. I don't want to lead anyone astray here because when I say that we rolled for everything Batman did, I mean that we rolled for everything Batman did. That game actually ended when Batman... Uh, was driving into Gotham in the Batmobile and failed to roll to keep his car on the road and died in a car crash. So that was the end of my my first role-playing game was Batman being unable to drive due to poorly poorly balanced mechanics. But but my experience after that was that I eventually, my mom eventually took me into the local game store in Rochester, Minnesota called Pinnacle Games. And on top of a shelf there, they had the the old red box basic set for D&D, the classic 83 Menser uh, basic set. And that, that box set in, in, inside of it had a solo play adventure, text-based solo play adventure where you got a character and it walked you through and choose your own adventure and explained how the mechanics of the game worked and basically gave you that taste of like, this is how, this is what a role-playing game is about. And then also gave pretty good instructions in the DM's guide about how to build your first dungeon step-by-step, draw the map, write the key numbers. This is what you put in each key. And that that's the game that got me into it because I, I didn't have anyone local to me who was running games. I just knew that I really wanted to play a role playing game. And it's players like me. Like I went I mean, if you look at that story, I went through four games before and had to stick with it for four games before finding one that told me what the heck it is I'm supposed to be doing with this with this cool concept of role playing games. And I have to I have to I have to assume that there are lots of other people like me who didn't make it to game four, but like, you know, they, they checked out the first two games that they found at best and then didn't get it and never, never became a role player, even though they could have been 
a phenomenal role player who could have introduced bunches of people to the game. I think that's the missed opportunity. Yeah, I mean, that kind of goes into what you were saying before when we were talking, when you were, you know, suggesting the Mercer effect. And really, I think that actual plays and Let's Plays, if anything, all they've done is put so many eyes on the hobby. And not only have they kind of piqued interest, but it's also like, oh, I, I could probably do that. Or I can kind of intuit what they're doing. But by providing a more concrete guide that you're kind of suggesting and removing that like arcane language that you kind of have to know through the oral history absolutely helps out with stuff like that. Um, but I did want to pivot away because we are technically a world building podcast. I did want to pivot away and talk <laughs> to you about uh, some of your own world building. And uh, one of the questions I always like to ask people is how your environment kind of affects the way that you world build because you're, you're coming from Minnesota and I, I know from experience, I've, I've had friends of mine who've had their summer graduations uh, delayed by blizzards. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I have to wonder, like, do you think that the winter wastes of Minnesota actually kind of influence your gaming at all? Or is it all about, you know, like deserts or do you actually get into the cold somewhat? No, I think I think I think you're absolutely right that there is an influence there. I think it's I think it's subtler because like like it's not that I don't like set games in a desert, right? But like when I set games in a desert, I'm very consciously like this is not a environment that I live in. It's not an environment that I'm used to. But I think it's actually I think it's the slight biases when you get a little bit closer to home. So for example, if you go to, if you go to a forest in Minnesota, it it looks like it looks one way. And it looks that way because of the types of trees that are native here, it, because of the forest management that happens uh, in this state and in this country, uh, because of the climate. Um, and so it looks one way. If you go to the Pacific Northwest and you go to and you and you go into the forest there, it's a very different forest that has that because of the moisture and the fact it's warmer and there's less snow. Uh, that you know, there's a lot more. There's a lot more lichens and moisture in the air, and and the ways that those forests look. If you go to a forest in England, it looks different again, and and so on and so forth. And I think it's actually in those areas where I think it is easiest to have uh, to have a bias towards what you're familiar with. So, like when I picture when I picture a forest in D and D, when I'm describing a D and D adventure, I am by default, heavily biased towards mentally picturing the forest that I, you know, clambered about in when I was 12 or whatever, or go take nature hikes in today with my daughter. And, and so that, that, and so unless I specifically think about describing different kinds of forests and different kinds of, of terrain, I think there is a, is a bias there. And I think forests are really fascinating as well, because um, our visions of forests are actually so heavily based on uh, so heavily based on on the forests as they exist around us today, and those forests are actually heavily influenced by the way that that we as a society and as governments manage those mm. forests. And so, mm. uh, I think I think often you see people like talk about primeval forests in D and D or other role playing games, and those primeval forests for some reason like have been have completely cleared cleared patches of ground and like. Mm. Uh, have been have been have been and there's there's nice paths that have been that have been that have been cut through them despite the lack of, of Victorians doing that uh, yeah. in in your D and D campaign world and so I think that's just kind of the I think that's where the sort of your local environment has kind of an, an interesting 
an interesting bias. I think the other thing too is also seasons of the year. Like if whether I'm reading a book or if I'm if I'm running a game, and basically if I say like it's the third month of the year, whether we call that March or not, the weather that I will default to imagining is absolutely Minnesota weather, unless I very specifically think about a different kind a different kind of weather. Um, and again, it's interesting because like the further if you if you, if I go all the way to the desert, if I go all the way to like the 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 equator regions or the jungle regions of my of my game world, the fact that it's so distant. Uh, means that my brain doesn't doesn't default to my bias, but I have to get that distance before before my bias uh, doesn't try to assert itself. Uh, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, and and one thing that I was also rather curious about we 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 were interviewing Rich Baker and we asked him what his biggest piece of advice when it came to role playing was, and a lot of it was essentially create a stage, right? Have have it be small, but player facing. It's like when you're acting and you see the set from behind, it looks entirely different than what the audience would see. And so I use that as a segue to what is your number one piece of advice when it comes to uh, DMing, role-playing, and specifically to us, world-building? Well, if I'm if I'm thinking about GMing specifically, my my number one piece of advice that I that I sort of gravitated towards in my thinking over the past couple of years is active play. I think that I think that the best way to get into a good place as a GM is to think about everything you do as as active play. The same way that your players are actively playing their characters, and they don't necessarily come to a session thinking, "Well, this is what my character is going to do this session." They show up, they have their character sheet, and they react to what to what I am as a GM am giving them by actively playing their character. And I think as a GM, I think that the best place to be is to be doing the same thing with all of the elements that you have. You have many more elements, which I argue actually makes it easier. There's this perception is a lot more difficult, but I actually think you know if I have six different NPCs and a whole tribe of goblins that gives me a whole lot of options when it comes to sort of actively playing the setting um and so that's my that's my my key piece of advice for a gm is to think about having a toy box and how you can actively play with those toys rather than thinking about plots or stories or like what's supposed to happen in this session mm-hmm. in terms of world building i think it's actively connected to that over the years my my approach to world building has been very much like the player facing, like you say, Rich Baker was talking about and player facing, but also I think um, uh, play oriented is a, is a term I will often use with my writers at Atlas, for example, I'll say, you know, if you, if you're going to put, if you're going to put material into your book, then I want that material to be play oriented. I want it to be something that there is a clear way in which it can be put into a session, put in front of the players so that they can experience it. Um, and so that that's something I think about a lot with my world building is not that and like there are exceptions. There's times when I want to be able to go back and, and do the layer behind that, the foundation behind that material. But I, I really try and make a point in the adventures I design and the settings I design that I am designing. I'm designing for the players to experience it. And this is something I, I, I think we get a lot of bad examples from from published from published RPG supplements that are designed to be read by the GM, and that's their primary function, in that often those books have all kinds of information with no clear way for it to actually get into a session so that the GM can share that with their players and have the players enjoy it as well. I, one, of my, one of my early experiences was, I believe the name of the module was Touch of Evil, 
And it was a Ravenloft module published in the, I want to say early 90s by TSR for, for the second edition of D&D. And uh, this module, when I read it, I was like, this is amazing. There was like all of these evil villains with all these kinds of machinations and these elaborate plots. And I got to the end of the book and I was looking back over, I was really excited to run it, but I was looking back over the book and I was like, hang on a second. There's all these details about all these cool relationships that the NPCs all have with each other, but the actual things that the players are doing in this adventure don't actually show you any of those things. And so that was my first experience kind of figuring figuring that bit of the oral history out, if you will, when sitting down and be like, okay, well, if I want all this cool stuff, there's nothing wrong with the cool stuff. It's just like, well, how do you get that cool stuff into the game? And I think you you were talking about um, about how you use the three clue rule for for more than just mystery scenarios. And I think that's a hundred percent accurate and true. And this is an example of that. So the three clue rule basically states that for any any conclusion that you want the PCs to make you need to include at least three clues. And and the short version of why is basically it gives you a plan and two backup plans uh, so that when the players miss one of the clues or misinterpret one of the clues or reach the wrong uh, or fail to even look for one of the clues, that they can then still have sort of redundancy that will let them get back on track. And I think when I think about play-oriented material, it's very much in the same way where I think about, okay, well, these are the cool things in the game world how can we make the players aware of them? How can we bring those things on stage? How can we let the players interact with these elements? I'm so glad that you also, yeah. I mean, it, it just sounds, what's the word I'm looking for? See, again, this is why I'm the editor. I can just- Validation. Yeah. <laughs> we, we just shared a gift that says vindication from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Confirming what yeah. you're saying. That's Absolutely, why. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> um, well, you know what? Uh, I think we're right about that time where we're going to transition into some Patreon questions. So we had our patrons ask a couple of questions for, uh, for you. Uh, C.R. Rowenson has a question. He wants to know, how would you run a long retreat or hunted scenario? Something like PCs are traveling a distance while constantly being tracked or attacked. Uh, he gives the example of the Nazgul from Fellowship of the Ring or Reaper in the Elfstones of Shannara. Well, it's interesting because I'd actually grabbed my uh, my Magical Kitties Save the Day rule book when we're talking about adventure recipes. And one of the adventure recipes we designed for that was actually the rescue operation. And the idea is that as a Magical Kitty who is, needs to save the day, you'd probably often be saving saving people who are in distress. And so we talk about in that recipe the fact that you, you, know, you have the person who is in distress uh, you'd also want to prep a path to safety, which is the route that the kitties will use to get their person to safety. Um, you don't actually need necessarily prep that for this particular recipe. You can let the let the players, let the kitties determine that for themselves. And then you come up with a hazard list, and the list of hazards describes the dangers in the path that the kitties uh, will encounter, usually one by one. Uh, and you can also design a detour. So if the kitties fail versus a particular hazard, they might be forced onto a different path that they don't want. Uh, you should know what this path is ahead of time because you'll be forcing the kitties onto it instead of them choosing it. Once they're on the detour, they'll keep facing the dangers from the hazard list. Once the kitties have beaten all of the hazards on the list, they make it to safety. And that's a very simple way of running that kind of that kind of um, of adventure. Now, if I wanted to do something that was sort of one step up from that sort of core simple experience, uh, I would certainly look at ways in which the 
I would look at ways in which the players would be able to make meaningful decisions or contributions towards determining whether or not they were found. And I think the Nazgul is a great example of this from written fiction, where the hobbits are constantly choosing different paths, and uh, both before and after they meet Aragorn. And the question comes back to whether or not the Nazgul can can find them, can hunt them down. And so I'm, I'm probably just spitballing at this point, right? But I would look at a structure called a point crawl, which is basically uh, you have a bunch of points and you connect them by paths. And the key, the key sort of choice for the players in a point crawl structure is which path am I going to follow? So I know that this node here in the point crawl, this point in the point crawl of Brie, for example, I might have a, uh, I know that there's a road that goes back to Hobbiton. That's one path. I know that there is a, uh, that there is a path that goes to Weathertop. I know that there is the, the road that runs out of Brie uh, to the to the east, and I might say, okay, well, the other option is maybe I could cut down to the river, and each of those would be would be a and you, basically I have a whole node map of things with the PCs being able to choose different paths uh, through the through the wilderness, and each of those paths would maybe have a different a different likelihood that the Nazgul will be able to spot them, but you could also then build into the various nodes along that path. Uh, advantages to the PC. So in the case of the Nazgul chase, if we just look from the Bree point forward, um, in the book, they decide to go to Weathertop because Weathertop will let them look out over the region and also possibly Gandalf might be planning to meet them there. And so that's one example of how you could code in a node with a certain chance of the Nazgul potentially finding them there versus the potential benefits of being there. And so you'd want to be able to, again, if you're talking about a more advanced way of, of prepping this, and you'd want to be looking at how to, how to provide a meaningful choice for the players and what route they choose. And you do that by having each route offer a variety of benefits versus, uh, versus costs. And then have some, some method for resolving whether or not the Nazgul can find you, which is probably for each path along that node that you take, there's probably a, a, stealth, ch a stealth check versus the Nazgul's search that you probably make. And then I would probably also on that, um, I would say that over time that, it, that the Nazgul, as they sort of zone in on you, uh, that, that there would be a, um, uh, there would be an advancing an advancing advantage to them. Where like, if you succeed once, that's great, but the next time they're going to get a plus two check, and the time after that, they're going to get a plus four check until they do find you and reset that counter. And the reason for that would be just to sort of build build the tension over time and make mm. sure that eventually the Nazgul do find you. If I was looking structurally, there's also a really cool board game called Scotland Yard. Um, uh, uh, that... Uh, that the whole structure of that game is that there's one player who is Mr. X who's being hunted by all the other players who are Scotland Yard, and Mr. X moves secretly on the board. I don't know exactly... You wouldn't be able to necessarily apply that directly to a role-playing structure for any number of reasons, but I think it would be... Um, but I think that, that the general sense I get from playing that game is what I want to try and capture at the, at the role-playing session, which is the idea... I really want the players to feel like, okay, well... We need. We want them to feel like they need to stay hidden, and we want them to be able to also feel the pressure of of everything. So one of the things you want to do while running this scenario would be, as you're describing the outcomes of these checks, you would want to be able to invoke invoke the Nazgul again. So you think about how Tolkien does that in his writing throughout the entire chase, even when the hobbits, uh, hobbits and or Aragorn avoid the Nazgul, they still end up seeing them at a distance. 
uh, almost being discovered by them. Maybe they hear other people talking about where they saw them. And so you'd want to be including all of that in the game as well to make sure that the by incorporating the skill resolution and, and potentially like when they get to Weathertop, they can see where the Nazgul are on the road, for example. All of that, you'd want to kind of figure out how to keep the Nazgul as a constant presence while they're chasing you. So like I say, that was kind of just kind of spitballing brainstorming, but somewhere in there, there's probably the rudimentaries of a, of a structure. I, I feel like we just got a preview or like a very rough draft of what the YouTube channel you're coming out with is going to look like, you know, like <laughs> I imagine it's going to be a more refined version of something like that. And to kind of go up with what you said as well, how many great dramatic scenes are there where the pursuer passes within inches of the pursued, right? Like that's ratcheting up the drama. That's what, the, so I, I would, I, I love the ideas that you got there. So we have one other patron question and uh, this actually pretty, you know, this is a pretty good question as well, because as much as we draw inspiration from your writings, they want to know what modules or systems that you've read that you've drawn a lot of inspiration from. You know, you, you have an entire series where you kind of remix or redo various well-known adventure modules. And what would you consider to be some of the better ones, some of the best ones, some of the ones that you've read and you were like, wow, why am I not doing this in my game? That's a, that is a great question. Uh, so the, the elephant in the room is going to be Masks of Nihilothotep, the classic Call mm -hmm. of Cthulhu campaign, uh, primarily written by Larry Dottilio in the 80s. Uh, and and uh, reprinted in, and, and expanded by Chaosium several times over the last few decades. Um, anyone who is not familiar with Masks of Nihilothotep should should run out and get Masks of Nihilothotep and take a look at it. When I talk about when I talk about the three clue rule and I talk about the node based scenario design that is built on top of the three clue rule, Masks of Nihilothotep was a was a massive influence on me in terms of building those ideas, of having different clues. have So in Massive Nihilothotep, uh, no, no, no major spoilers, light spoilers though, is, is this globe-hopping campaign, which is basically five different scenarios, each set in a different city of the world, New York, Cairo, Australia, etc. And each of these locations has clues which point you to the other, to the other locations around the globe, to the other cities around the globe. And largely speaking, that is basically what I do with node-based scenario design and, and three-clue rule, which is that there are clues that point you to the other nodes, and, and you can do it at a global scale, you can do it at a local scale, but that's basically it. So, like, Massive Nihilothotep, massive influence on my whole philosophy of GMing, and most of the scenarios I've ever run have probably been heavily influenced by by that by that nascent structure in Massive Nihilothotep. I'll also say uh, that uh, Pelgrane Press published a campaign called Eternal Lies for the Trail of Cthulhu game, which was heavily inspired by Mast of Nihilothotep itself. By the time Eternal Lies came out, um, that structure was always something that I, I, had, I had thoroughly assimilated. But if you're looking for another great node-based scenario design, Eternal Lies, absolutely. And that is one of the scenarios that I remixed on the Alexandrian. That was a remix where I was mostly being like, this is so cool. Let me pour a bunch of more cool content into it. Um, so that, that's another great one. Uh, what, are the, what are the ones? Uh, there's actually uh, a scenario that I think is lesser known these days, but it's called Three Days to Kill. It was written by John Tynes. It was actually the very first 
uh, one of the two very first uh, open gaming license products published in 2000. It was released at the same Gen Con that Wizards of the Coast released the third edition Player's Handbook. And so it was the very first, along with Death in Freeport from Green Ronin, uh, the very first, um, uh, like I say, open gaming license product. It's a very short module by John Tynes, but it was heavily influential on me because... So the the secret, so to speak, that he reveals on the last page of, of why the, the module is designed the way it is is that he had been playing uh, Tom Clancy's Rainbow Six computer games, and he wanted to capture that raid-like experience from those games at the table. And so the, the adventure very specifically uh, gives the PCs a magic item that lets them look through walls, and it's designed with the expectation that the that the GM will be actively playing the opposition within this country lodge that the PCs are trying to raid that's full of evil cultists. Um, and this, it was, like I say, it's, it's a, it seems like a really simple idea to me now, but at the time it was revolutionary to think of having the NPCs be actively played, uh, for lack of a better word, in response to the player's actions, and to have the adventure module specifically designed for that. The other thing that, that in the paradigm... Of, of how adventures are structured, why it was so influential for me, was that if you talk about like a dungeon crawl, for example, the the basic modus operandi of the dungeon is that the PCs don't know what the dungeon looks like and, and the core experience is exploring that dungeon and discovering what is there. The core experience of the raid, on the other hand, is to basically know, have, a, have the ability to know the whole floor plan of whatever this location is that you're, you're dealing with and to then make a plan about how you're going to, to tackle it. It's kind, of the, it's kind of the opposite in terms of the information you have and the expectations of how you're going to approach the environment, even though the basic structure of like draw a map and have numbers and room descriptions and stuff, is, is, it has that in common, right? So that was kind of really interesting to, to have it so plainly put like what what that how, how how a simple difference in approach could change the way that a scenario would play out at the table. So that was also hugely influential. Another another adventure I like to mention in these discussions is uh, called the Bane Warrens. It's by um, it's by Monty Cook, and he published it um, through his Malhavik uh, Press Company uh, that he ran back in the third edition days. They're actually uh, redesigning it along with the whole Tolis setting that it's set in. Uh, for 5th edition. They ran a Kickstarter for that last year, and I think the first books are beginning to come out now. The Bane Warrens is this huge dungeon complex underneath an urban environment. And when the PCs go down into it, again, light spoilers, when the PCs go down into it, there's obviously things that happen there, but it turns out that there's other factions in the city who are also interested in this dungeon. And they'll either approach the PCs to try to get the PCs to help them, or they'll send their own personnel into the dungeon to attempt to accomplish their goals in the dungeon. So in addition to being a dungeon crawl, the Bane Warrens also incorporates the sort of urban-based, faction-based play. And then that interaction between the dungeon and the city actually bounces back and forth and adds this whole new dimension to dungeon-style play. And the Bane Warrens, like I say, just, just a fantastic product in this regard, really opens your eyes about what you can do with a dungeon, particularly one that, that they're that close in an urban environment like that. So those, that's a handful of, uh, of adventures that, that, have, that I think are fantastic, that I couldn't wait to get to the table and experience and play with, and also had a kind of a major impact on, on me as a designer. Uh, I, I just want to say thank you for mentioning Tolis, which is one of my favorite and probably 
most influential books that I've read in terms of RPG design. I remember reading Tolis by for an entire from cover to cover during one summer and just being blown away at how good that entire setting was. Such uh, a fantastic, fantastic book. It's like it's like uh, 650 pages long. It describes this one city um, in 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 great detail. And this is actually a great example of 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 that sort of uh, play oriented material I was talking about. Like there are gazetteer elements in there, but even within the gazetteer describing the city, every location you flip to in that book uh, basically screams at you. This is how when you, when you're at the table with your players, this is how this location can be put in front of your players. This is why it's going to be interesting to your players. This is how the location can can lead to something even more interesting as well and how these all, all sort of connected together. Every every page of that book is play-oriented and focused on mm-hmm. on running the game and making it easier for you to run the game and and resulting in a better game because you're using that book. Absolutely fantastic. I've been running a Tolis campaign since 2007. Uh, I've got over, we've played over 100 sessions over the years. Um, there's actually a campaign journal on the Alexandrian of some of the early years that people can, can take a peek at how amazing the adventures that can happen in the setting are. Um, one of my big regrets with the pandemic is that we've actually had to put that game on hiatus because uh, it just wasn't working remote. And so we're, we're all champing at the bit to get back into this amazing setting in a few months, hopefully, when the vaccines have happened and the pandemic uh, lets us play together again. But um, yeah, Tolis is fantastic. Yeah, we're, we're all looking forward to being able to see each other and roll dice in person again. I, I, <laughs> I'm right there with you. Also, yeah, Tolis, please, for th- there's a fifth edition version of it. Please go and get Tolis. It's worth your time and money and effort and everything. It's got more hooks than a bait shop and everything has been thought out. And as you said, is player facing, is in- engaging to the players. It's so, so good. I cannot recommend it enough either. Um, so with that being said, we are now ready to pivot into the world building jam session. Justin, are you ready? Let's do this. All right. With the pandemic and everything, the most dice I get to roll is for the podcast. (laughs) So yeah. So for those of you who might not know how this works, uh, we are going to roll some dice that determine the genre subject and archetypal story that we're going to be following And then, Justin, you as our guest are going to be creating a scenario that we're going to workshop and collaboratively build together. So the first one is we're creating a genre. Well, we're not creating a genre, but the genre that we're creating in is going to be a modern day setting with a subject that is a monster. And then the archetypal story that we're going to be following is going to be a comedy. So we've got a monster in a modern day setting that is comedic in some way. And Justin, why don't you go ahead and start us off? All right, well, let's talk a little bit about this. So we wanna have a monster. The question is, if it's comedy, do the players know it's comedy up front or is it a is it a twist reveal at some point in it? The immediate touchstone I think of is the, um, is the uh, Yurisai Yatsura series by Rumiko Takahashi, in which uh, it's the series basically in Japanese like is basically titled "The Monster Aliens" or "The Aliens," and uh, but but all the monsters are in fact um, uh, very friendly, uh, but also weird. Um, uh, yeah, so uh, 
I think let's start with like what the monster is. Do we go with something classic? Do we go with like a do we go with like a werewolf? I think we go with a werewolf. Okay, so we've got a werewolf in a modern day comedy. Um, so how do we let's let's go ahead and build from there, shall we? Is it a is it a wolf or is it a werewolf metaphorically? Or is it like a wear something? Like wear zebra or mm-hmm. any of those variants? Let's uh well, why, why don't we do something, uh, let's see. Let, let's do something atypical. So it's not necessarily a werewolf, but it's a were, uh, well, maybe that's where we can kind of add in the comedy. Do we want to make it a duck-billed platypus and make it inherently comedic right away? Or do we want to, uh, do we want to add in a little bit something else? You know, maybe it's a... Um, I like Justin's suggestion of not knowing that it's comedy until the last moment. Okay, so so if that's the case then, we do have a twist. Do we want to kind of build up this idea and then go into the twist with a comedic bent in mind? The twist yeah. is it's a divine comedy. Right. Oh yeah. Okay. So so let's build out the world a little bit then. It's a modern day setting, which means, you know, it could be Harry Dresden, it could be superheroes, it could be anything. What kind of a scenario are we going to be working with here with this were creature of some kind? what pairs well with comedy if we're going to have a flip it on this head we should do the opposite starting out so that it's a total shock horror doesn't go with comedy that's that's a joke in and of itself (laughs) (laughs) so maybe it needs to be like gritty and noir and over the top serious and edgy and it ends up being totally a comedy okay so like a noir werewolf Uh, yeah werewolf yeah, hard-boiled detective werewolf story. Yeah. I'm fucking yeah, investigating I mean, that... his own crimes. <laughs> oh my god, yes, yes. That's, that's that would actually, be the comedy of it. Yeah, <laughs> that's actually now. pretty good. Yeah, that's kind of a tragic comedy. Yeah, that's true. This okay. monster's following me, mocking me. <laughs> oh my god. It keeps it keeps sneaking into my house and covering me and my bed with blood. It's really strange. He thinks he's having it pinned on him, but it's like literally true. You know, oh, it wasn't me. It was the werewolf. Okay, buddy. Okay, yeah, sure it was. Oh, that's actually that's actually pretty good oh, too. Like you know, it. you could do like some kind of a hunted series or something like that. Mm-hmm. Okay, all right. Um, so is he is he a police detective or is he a private detective? Like, does he? Mm. Is he working in the system or outside the system? Private. He left the force. Yeah. Yeah. Let's yeah, let's go yeah. with that. That's Gritty. a good, that's yeah. a good compromise. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what did he leave the force due to corruption, or was he kicked off because he was like charged with something he didn't do? Was he framed? He was that, framed. That does so now story of it happening before. Oh, you were framed twice, really? <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. yeah. I mean, and that in and of itself can be kind of farcical as well. So that's actually yeah. really good. Yeah. Um, and then maybe, so we've got a werewolf. Let's figure out how he became a werewolf to begin with. Then I imagine that the inciting incident that kind of got him off the force in the first place was related to his werewolfism hmm. or like, if you it. want to be fancy about it, you know? But he didn't yes. know. Yeah, yeah. through. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Um, okay. All right. So we've got a hard-boiled werewolf detective. He got... So, so maybe we can kind of talk about how werewolves exist in this world. Mm-hmm. Uh, in what... Se- like, I like the idea that we take it back to the ancient Greco-Roman re- roots 
and kind of make it so it's like, oh boy, those are just barbarians, but it's literally everyone who's not Roman. So maybe, <laughs> maybe we can kind of make it so he was investigating some kind of a uh, an ancient archaeological dig and got bit by a, a wolf skull or like a fragment Ooh, of a like bone that. or something oh. like that. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. cool. Okay. Uh, all right, so... So that's the scenario. Is this where we throw in the twist? Is this what we're going to be doing? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So now that we've kind of created the, and developed the scenario a little bit more, we're going to throw in a twist to actively fuck up everything that we've done, or at least in part. So let's go ahead and roll the die and see what twist we get. So it says here that we have to throw the story into the past or the future. Uh, so to um. me... I would love nothing more than to have this be a neon soaked instead of noir. And oh, now we're in the eighties. No, no, no. Yeah. We're in the eighties. Oh, okay. We're in oh, the, the 80s. actual eighties. <laughs> yeah. The, yeah. The American 1980s with a ton of cocaine and oh, a ton God. of like, just Chester. like, Paul. yeah, I was thinking we could do like, um, Miami vice, but with a werewolf. Oh yeah. Like, yeah. Let's yeah. do it in Florida. Oh my God. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think okay, yeah. So if we talk about like the comedy angle, I think there's something about so he's a private dick who has who used to be a cop. He was framed. the The werewolf side of him has like his own life, like a schizophrenic life, oh. and that and that's probably like Scarface, right? Like yes. the the wolf oh, is actually yeah. Like he goes around dressed up in like white leisure suits, like shooting places up and like mm-hmm. snorting tons of cocaine when he's in werewolf form. <laughs> so the, the werewolf form is also the drug boss kingpin that he's trying to track and he's down. Fighting. Yes. And, wait. and it's the guy who originally framed him. <laughs> oh the, my God. I could see the hard boiled uh, detective having like a drinking problem. So anytime yes. he actually blacks out or loses track, that's of when days, he transforms. Uh, yes. Yep. This is so fucking dumb, and I love it. I the love ambrosia about this. Yeah. from the original skull is what carried the curse, and he when he drinks alcohol, it's what causes him to transform. Oh, oh my god. god! Yep. Okay. I'm fine. All with right. That. Yeah. Uh, I think I think werewolf Scarface is where we're going to end that jam. Um, but wow. good. Yeah, that was that was absolutely fun. Okay. All right. I'll so find with, him yet. <laughs> I want to. I want to read that as a comic. I think that would be awesome in comic form. Yeah, I, th- I would agree. Uh, two okay, different comics so, from two different perspectives. Yes. Yes. Oh, you know, I, now and it's a manga format. That, uh, well, yeah, yeah. I, I was just thinking we could also do it in like the Simpsons, like McBain movie <laughs> style as well. Oh that could God. work. Yeah. Uh, okay. With that said, we're now going to jump into the rapid fire question section of the interview. Justin, you're not ready. I'm not even going to ask. So my (laughs) wife wants to know, is cereal a soup? Yes. All right. What is, yes, thank you. Add one to my column. He got fucking Uh, Justin. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What is your favorite uh, official D&D supplement? Adventure, I mean, adventure. Adventure specifically, a yes. favorite official D and D adventure. Uh, I'm gonna go with Night Below. Oh, good one. And what is your most memorable player death? <laughs> the most memorable player death was in my OD and D campaign. Uh, there was a they they accidentally triggered a room. They were low level characters. They triggered a room where 
that had been stacked high with corpses, and they, they triggered the room so that each of those corpses was coming to life. So they had hundreds of skeletons that were waking up at like 2d8 or 2d10 per round. They retreated into a hallway and spread a bunch of burning oil on the ground and actually managed to hold their ground for a long time. The skeletons were coming through the fire and like burning up and getting destroyed. And they were kind of holding that line. But then eventually their luck turned and one of the skeletons ended up killing one of the characters who also turned out to be the one who was carrying all of most of the party's oil. Like they had purchased like 30 or 40 flasks of oil and had been like feeding the fire. So at this point, the skeletons had like had overwhelmed their position. The other PCs kicked the dead PC into the fire and then ran. Uh, and then one D four rounds later, the other 40 vials of oil caught fire and exploded behind them. And a, it's my favorite death. Cause like it's Epic. It's like Michael Bay Epic, but the, the, the player who was actually playing the character, like actually drew flames at the bottom of their character sheet and then wrote boom in giant letters across the character sheet <laughs> and, and gave that to me. I still have that character sheet. Wow. So that's probably my favorite character death. That's great. Oh my God. Daniel, hit him with the rapid fire questions. So I, I was going to ask you what your favorite Dunder Call experience was, but I think we already answered that. So my, my second <laughs> question is, who is your favorite Batman villain? My favorite Batman villain is... Really put him on the Two-Face. Going to go with Two-Face. Oh, and why? Two-Face is my favorite villain because he is actually the more interesting reflection of Batman. People talk about the Joker being the reflection of Batman, and that's that's true to some extent. Like all of his villains are different reflections, right? But in Two Face, you have the person who is seeking to clean up Gotham, who is passionate about that. He is the he is the White Knight to the Dark Knight, and he also then shows the danger of what happens when you let that obsession overwhelm you. And so he is a living reminder of the real danger that that Bruce faces as Batman. He is the he is the monster that Batman could become if Bruce doesn't maintain his control. I think that's an interesting uh, that's an interesting way of reflecting the character. Awesome. All right. And Chris, you have a rapid fire question. Go ahead. Uh, you have given many uh, advices as to what makes a good mystery and how to uh, develop a mystery. What's something you would say should not be done? or attempted in a mystery. <laughs> so something I say in the three clue rule essay, uh, which I think is probably very true is red herrings. I think that if you are running a, running a mystery scenario, designing a red herring, i.e. putting deliberate information into the scenario that is designed to make the players think something which is wrong is, is vastly overrated and maybe shouldn't never be done, but, but like should rarely, rarely be done. Um, I haven't used a red herring in a mystery in 20 years and I haven't missed them. And one of the reasons for that is that the players often provide their own red herrings because even if you put, even if you put all the information in the world that, that points conclusively at the correct solution, the PC, the players will come up with like three different explanations before that. So, uh, so I would not, I would not bother with red herrings. That's my, that's my number one rule of thumb. All right. And Justin, what have you been playing recently? Oh, that's a that's a big question. Actually, I, I'm actually running a bunch. I'm actually running too much stuff. I am currently running uh, Icewind Dale: Rime of the Frost Maiden. I've just 
very slowly been kicking off a sandbox campaign for that. I've got a feng shui action role-playing game that I've been running, which is mostly a playtest group, whereas we actually have a bunch of new feng shui RPG scenarios that are being released, uh, developed and released. And so as those come in from my writers, I've been running them past past this group. We just got done exploring the uh, the Burning Dragon Festival in Mongolia, which has been subverted by evil sorcerers. Um, so I've got that going on. I have an Ars Magica campaign that is currently running. Uh, we have a covenant in the Rhine, uh, full of wizards trying to, uh, trying to, uh, discover new secrets of magic. Specifically, they are trying to discover, uh, the secrets of why, uh, of what a human soul is and why magic can't affect it, which Ooh, I'm sure will not in any way be disastrous for them when they find out I the answer to that question. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, who is someone who you would love to shout out who is not yourself? I'm going to shout out uh, Nick Bate, who is currently running a Kickstarter for a game called Stealing the Throne, uh, which is a heist game about stealing a giant mecha. Uh, Nick has worked with me previously, and he is just a fantastic developer, and I'm really excited about that game. Dear God, uh, you just got another Kickstarter on there. So, yeah, add that (laughs) one on. And uh, finally, where can people find you online? You can find me online at thealexandrian.net. That's T-H-E-A-L-E-X-A-N-D-R-I-A-N.net. I think I managed to spell it correctly that time. I also <laughs> stream on Twitch at twitch.tv slash thealexandrian as well. All right. And thank you so much for joining us. It, I'm so glad that we finally got to make this happen. Uh, me too. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. And we're back. Gentlemen, we have about 80 episodes as of recording (laughs) on the books. And we've been trying to get Justin Alexander on as a guest for about 60 of those episodes. I was going to say 70. Yeah, no, 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 no. Because we we, we sat around. We didn't have guests for the first like 20-ish That's true, that's true. Yeah. So it is an extreme pleasure to finally have him on and to pick his brain. And if you haven't already been like enthused to go and check out his website, The Alexandrian, dear yeah, yeah. God, did you not just listen to the last hour of the podcast? Honestly. Everything about that is he's he's an encyclopedia. Mm-hmm. I see him as the Escoffier of of like RPGs. And if he can bind all of that into one thing, that's going to be amazing. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so main takeaways, Daniel. Oh man. Um, I know you're, me... you're, you've got the, you've got the literal actual vapors from talking to Justin. <laughs> <laughs> Cause like I was, I was saying on the thing, like I've read all of his stuff, but it has to do with GMing at least. Um, and mm-hmm. so I was, I was just try, struggling to find more questions to ask, being in awe of the material, you know. And yet, I still feel like we could probably have him on for another two, another oh, yeah. two to three hours easily. Like, uh-huh. I, I could probably, ha- we could probably have like a forty-five minute conversation about Tolis and why Tolis is so fucking good. Like, <laughs> no problem whatsoever, you know. Ugh. I mean, it's it's just usually what I really like of too is that the kind of answers he gives are extremely comprehensive, which is the way that his mm-hmm. writing is. But it's not yes. comprehensive in a way that's tedious or overbearing. It's kind of like here's practical information you need to accomplish the thing. It also codifies things that you kind of do intuitively as a GM yes. that yes. 
when you think about it as a codified system actually makes you a better GM mm-hmm. because it streamlines so much of that process. You know, it's like theory to practice. That's what it is. Yeah, it's like there's absolutely. theory, but he's showing us ways that we put it into practice that I feel like, like he was saying, and like it's become an oral tradition and we don't have a way of passing it down in a format mm-hmm. that people unfamiliar with the medium can understand. Absolutely. That's what he does. Absolutely. Whew. All right. Well, With that all being said, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of World Build With Us. Uh, Remember that if you want us to build your world, you can always go ahead and email us over at worldbuildwithus at gmail.com. Or you can always shoot us a tweet over at Let's World Build. Of course, if you don't want to do that and you just kind of want to come hang out with us, you can do that over on our Discord. And if you're feeling particularly generous and want to take part of our sweet, sweet Patreon bennies. You can always go ahead and join us on Patreon as well. Link for the Discord and the Patreon in the description of this podcast. Uh, So yeah, thank you so much for listening. Remember that we love you very much and we're going to get through this together until next week. (laughs) 